Psalm 89, verse 14 and 15 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence. And we just want to remind ourselves each week as we gather um, that God is our foundation for life. And, and really, this next song is just a prayer that we would build our life on him and that we would place him at the center. Um, so let's bow our heads, calm our hearts before we uh, continue this morning. Father, uh, we thank you that your throne is unmovable, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Father, help us to be people who walk in the light of your presence. Lord, help us to be people who live lives of praise and trust and adoration. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. We live for you. to share uh, a couple of good news announcements from the week. Eric and Anj welcomed their son Enoch on September 30th. So uh, we're excited about that. And then Victoria Martinez, her son Ruben J. Ray was born on October 1st. So back-to-back days, that's probably a pretty rare occurrence uh, in the life of a church to uh, welcome new ones. And we're just thankful for God's provision and his help and his care for that. We also, you know, want to keep in mind those that are still dealing with loss. Um, think of Alfonso Barney and and uh, the loss of his his mother in the past week. And you know, our hearts are just heavy for that. And uh, for others in, in our group, uh, the Westfall family, continue just to lift them up in prayer. We, we're just so thankful that we can be here together as a church body, uh, that we can su- support each other in in difficult times. And and uh, praise God when we have those those moments of, of good news as well. So uh, with that, uh, I'm going to invite Patty up. Patty has some, some news to share about Operation Christmas Child. So if you just want to, you can just stand in front of the podium here, and this microphone right, right there should be ready to go. Thanks, Got Patty. it. Thanks. Hi, I'm Patty. And Operation Christmas Child is near and dear to my heart. Um, it combines three of my very favorite things in the whole entire world, Jesus, and children, and shopping. (laughs) Most of you are probably really familiar with it, but I'm going to give a really brief summary. Basically, it's the gospel in a shoebox. You put fun little things in there, school supplies, toys, yo-yos, jump ropes, baseball caps. The things you cannot put in are candy, no toothpaste, nothing war-related. These kids have been through a lot already, and we just don't want to remind them of hard, hard things. The shoeboxes go around the world. This has been going on since like 1993, I believe. They go to millions of children, typically Operation Christmas Child, which is part of Samaritan's Purse, which is Franklin Graham's ministry. There are about 8 million shoeboxes a year. They pledge to only give one shoebox to a child ever in their lifetime. And a lot of these children, this may be the only gift they've ever gotten. 
and it's called Operation Christmas Child because we collect them before Christmas. We'll be collecting them on November 15th, which is in just a few weeks, so I'm kind of giving you time to do your shopping. There are some boxes out in the foyer, and there are also these brochures. You can cut out a label, either boy or girl, and then you choose what age range you want, and then you mark that. You can also go online, SamaritansFirst.com, and it'll give you links to go out to Operation Christmas Child. If you pay for your shipping, it's $9 to ship a box, which in the United States, where can you ship a box for $9? If you pay for your shipping online, you can print your label online, and it'll have a little barcode, and then when it goes to a processing center, they will scan that barcode. When it arrives in the country, they'll scan that barcode again. And at that point, you will get an email telling you what country your box went to. If you put in a note from your family, sometimes, and I have done this, and I have gotten letters back, sometimes you'll get a letter back saying thank you and who the child is that got your box and where they live, and it's really fun. Even if you're not a kid, it's really fun. The two most important things to know are, number one, the very most important thing to put in your box is prayer. Pray for this child. Operation Christmas Child does an incredible job of teaching local teachers how to share the gospel and teaching them how to teach the children. And then if they graduate from the program in many, many of these countries, they will receive a New Testament in their language. So it's so much more than just a shoebox. The other thing you can do is when you go shopping, pray, because God knows what that child needs. I have heard, I have goosebumps just thinking of the stories that I've heard, and if you want to hear any, catch me, just amazing stories of children who have prayed for things months before you ever shopped. <laughs> Put them in your shoebox, and then the child opens it and knows that God loves and hears them. If you have any questions, feel free to grab me. Like I said, there are boxes out there. You can also use your own shoe box. It's really fun to just wrap it in Christmas paper. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. I'd invite you to pray with me, if you would, as we prepare to worship through the study of God's word. Father, we are here by your grace, and we pray that you would help us to live for your glory I ask that your spirit would continue to work in my heart and in each of our hearts as we consider these issues that we're looking at from your word this morning. I pray, uh, thanking you for uh, the things that have come before us. I, I pray, dear God, for our church family rejoicing with those in not just uh, Eric and Ange and Victoria, but others who've recently had uh, little ones, and we just are so excited to welcome them into the world, and we know that uh, the, the children are a gift from the Lord, and we thank you for that, and we pray also for the, the grieving families uh, in, our, in our body, and pray that your spirit would comfort and encourage them, and we ask now that you'd open our eyes as the psalmist prayed, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law, that you would help us to learn and to grow and mature and to exercise grace and mercy and love as we do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, this past week, we, some, saw what was supposed to be a presidential debate, but I would submit to you that it was neither presidential nor a debate. 
Uh, it was, in my estimation from what I've heard and what I've gathered, uh, more of an indictment of the culture and more of a reflection of the problems in our culture, hostility, lack of civility, uh, absence of objectivity, and, you know, evidence of the, the moral decline in our, in our culture. We live in really, really challenging times in America today. We're at a crossroads as we come up to this very important general election that's coming up in November. Both major political parties and a bunch of people who profess faith in Christ are on opposite ends of policies all across America. And it seems to me that it's a difficult thing to wrap up our series on race, justice, and government today as we look at these things. But as we do, what I hope to accomplish this morning is for us to look at and navigate somewhat through these turbulent waters of how we understand what we believe impacts how we behave. What do we believe as, as Christians from the Word of God and then how that impacts how we behave in the realm of politics, in the realm of civics, in the realm of involvement in our, in our society. So yeah, I know, I'm, I'm walking right out on the edge of the plank here and uh, so or, or backing up myself to the, to the firing wall. It's okay, we're going to look at the Word of God and ask you to exercise grace and mercy and hopefully and prayerfully we'll consider what God has to say, uh, more importantly than what man has to say. And so there are several passages of Scripture you're going to look at. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open to Jeremiah chapter 29. That's where I'm going to kind of camp, and then we'll be going different places, and you'll be able, hopefully, to see on the screen. No? Yeah, hopefully. On the screen, you'll be able to see some of these texts brought up to you. If not, I'll, I'll try to read them. But there are several texts, Scriptures, that I think expose for us at least three at, uh, three things, three steps we should take, politically speaking, uh, with regard to our participation in politics, okay, or civics and government. I'm in Jeremiah chapter 29, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. So if you want to follow along with me, if you have your phone, your device, your Bible, whatever you want to look on, uh, that's fine. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders that of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So we understand that he's writing from Jerusalem, sending this to Babylon to the people of Israel in Babylon. They're in captivity. And he says, this, verse 2, this was after Jeconiah, the, this is commentary, the queen mother of the court of the officials, the princes of Judah, and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elosh. Elasa, sorry, and the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, and now this is what we should focus on, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, these are people in exile, they're not in their homeland, they're outside of where they had grown up, okay, taken in there because of their sin, sent to exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, and live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Take wives, and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease. 
and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. Well, the first principle, the first practice that I'm going to hopefully draw out from this text and uh, some other texts is that we we are to pursue the welfare of our city, uh, our country, the city in the country in which God has sent us. Okay? So, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1, and uh, you see that it is there in Babylon, which we read, the children of Israel in Babylon, and verse 4, they're called uh, to, that's sent to those people who are there. So, in a sense, if you are professing faith in Jesus Christ, you are in the Babylon, okay? Because uh, this is not our home. We're, we're in Babylon. And what we see here is that God's people today, I think, can benefit uh, from following the prophet's guidance given to the Israelites exiled in Babylon because we too are out of our homeland. And so there's three actions that I want to highlight. One of them is not from this text. The other two are. But first of all, as we seek direction for our pursuing what's good for the city, we should be involved first properly understanding our condition. Psalm 11 verse 3 says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, last week we talked about what the foundations of our country are. I I said blatantly that I don't think that America is a Christian nation. It wasn't a Christian nation when it was founded. It was founded on Christian principles, okay? So there's a difference, there's a distinction there. But what's happened to that foundation? Well, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, which we're going to show you, I think, on the screen, is, is an indictment against our nation. It says, a righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Okay? And I think over the centuries, what's happened is a, a gradual deterioration, an erosion of the foundation upon which the United States was built. Significantly, over time, significantly, and profoundly, this erosion has taken place in the last few decades okay Merrill wrote very terrible so what's happened well I'm going to quote for you a few of the thinkers in in the culture okay so here's what Voltaire has to say those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities I think what we're witnessing in America today, and not just in America, but is the result of decades-long indoctrination in the absurdities of natural philosophy. Colossians chapter 2, remember we talked, well you might not remember, but Colossians chapter 2 we talked about uh, Paul warning the Colossians uh, not to be taken captive by every philosophy or empty deception after the, the principles of the world and after the Traditions of men. Well, what are those traditions of men? The naturalistic philosophy, humanistic philosophy. This is a philosophy that says basically that man is the highest order of created things, but basically no different than any other created thing. Man is basically good, and that if man is corrupted, it's corrupt, he's corrupted because of culture. Culture corrupts. So, man is not corrupted by man and it's it's captured in Abraham Maslow Maslow's hierarchy of needs some of you who've been to 
college or in high school, you've studied these things in psychology class. Here's what Maslow said. Sick people are made sick by a sick culture. Healthy people are made healthy by a healthy culture. So the conclusion is that basically institutions like the family, like the church, like the government are the problem. And they're responsible for evil. So you must get rid of those institutions which are the problem and we must rely upon ourselves. Okay? And this is what I, I said, I read this quote that it, part of the problem that Alec Moitner, Moitner says that we have abandoned God in the Bible. <laughs> well, this is the evidence that we have abandoned God in the Bible because this is the stuff that we're getting. And I got this stuff when I was in college and believe me, they haven't backed off on it since I was in college and that was a, a while back, okay? For help, so here's what, here's what the Humanist Manifesto declares. This is, no deity will save us. We must save ourselves. That's what the Humanist Manifesto says. So here we have a world in which a sovereign and holy God to whom we are ultimately accountable, who created us, is absolutely eradicated from the picture. And when you eradicate a holy and righteous God to whom we are accountable and responsible, it's really not that big of a surprise that we've had such seismic shifts away from biblical morality. I mean, that's, you know, that's what precipitates uh, the, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, saying that if you're indicted of a crime, uh, you can decide at that moment when you're going to go to prison if you want to go to a woman's penitentiary or a men's penitentiary. It depends on what you want to identify as at that point in time. That's where we get, that's how we get to where we are, I think. So this is the perception we need to understand, to properly understand our condition. Once we properly understand our condition, then we see what Jeremiah calls us to, which is to practice loving our neighbors, okay? We know it's bad, but God calls us to love. Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. In Jeremiah chapter 29, Verses 4 through 7, God's call is to seek the welfare of the city, okay, and the country where I have sent you. How do we do that? I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions, and I'm not even going to be able to elaborate on them. I wish I could, but um, the first one is just lead a quiet and peaceable life as a contributor, a quiet contributor in life. Now, I draw this from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to, I think, see this on the screen. If you look up there, it says, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. Okay, now, read it carefully. A quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and you won't be in any need. Basically, he's saying that as God's people, those who profess faith in Christ, look, just live a peaceable and quiet life, contributing to society, not being a drain on society. That's a way we can seek the welfare of our city and our country. Good, responsible citizens. Secondly, uh, we are to show Christ's love to our neighbors. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, uh, he said, therefore, as much uh, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, lead a peaceful and quiet life and do good to all people. That's what we're supposed to do. Um, so, how do we do that? Well, hell, you've got neighbors, right? 
Do your job. Go to work. Come home. Help your neighbors. Bring a meal. Pray for your neighbors. Do kind things. Have them over. Have a backyard party. Uh, get to know them so you can reflect the, the love of Jesus. After the derecho, which I never, I don't think I ever heard that word before, okay, until we had the big stormy winds, you know, the big, we had a hurricane in Iowa. Yeah. Basically, that's what they tell us. We had an Iowa hurricane. That's why I, I still don't figure out why the, the cyclones, go cyclones, are, are called cyclones. I mean, we, we don't have cyclones in Iowa. We have hurricanes, uh, landfall hurricanes. But anyhow, after the derecho, which was a huge, terrific winds, I had an opportunity to help my neighbor. I went over there and was uh, cutting on a tree and helping bring. And then uh, uh, they came out, and, and I was able to talk. For an extended period of time, I had a great, wonderful conversation about the things of God. Now, you know, I'm not kudos to me. It's just this is what we do as good neighbors. We want to care about people and show the love of Christ to people. That's how we build a relationship. That's how we seek the welfare of the nation. And that should be our focus, right? That should be our focus to live responsible lives and care about people. And Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31, talks about seeing the needs and caring for the needy and being, having a heart and being concerned for those who are, are hurting. So we are seeking their welfare, we're practicing love, and then we're prayerfully seeking God's intervention. How did I get that? Well, I didn't pick it out of the air. If you look at uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, it says, And seek the welfare of the city, okay, I have sent you to exile, and pray to the Lord on their behalf, on its behalf. I wonder, are we praying? You know, we talk about it, but are we praying on behalf? And there's two prayers that I think are uh, at least two I'm going to bring up. It's not anything I'm saying today is not the, the end all, okay? It's not the absolute final word on anything. It's just some things that God has put together in my mind and my heart. Uh, we, we pray for repentance. And this is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, which is a familiar verse. If my people were called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my face and pray. And turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. Forgive their sins. And heal their land. Now, again, written specifically. It's a conditional prayer. It's a conditional promise of God to Israel in exile. But I think it applies to my people at all times. Because it's based on the character of God. Who is forgiving. And gracious. And willing to restore those who humbly come to him in repentance. And what's the promise? The, the practice is we're supposed to exercise humility and prayer, seeking him and turning from him. That's what we're supposed to do. His nature is to forgive. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him. God wants to bless his people. But when we are knuckleheads, he doesn't bless knuckleheadedness. That's a new word. Okay, just created it. He doesn't bless us being obnoxious, rude, belligerent, disobedient people. Abraham Lincoln's prayer of 1863 is as appropriate today as it was then. He said this, We have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. 
I think it's time, way past time in America, that we humble ourselves and seek his face and pray and turn from our wicked ways. Personally, that we would repent and confess selfishness and pride and racism and greed and our participation in what's not just. The lack of compassion. JFK put it this way, and he was correct when he said, neither the wisest constitution or the wisest laws will secure the liberty and happiness of a people whose manners are universally corrupt. With God's promise, I will hear from heaven. <laughs> I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. So we pray for repentance, and we pray for repentance not just personally but we pray for repentance nationally what a joy it was to, to, to see thousands and thousands tens of thousands of people gathered in Washington DC a week ago Saturday on the National Mall seeking God's face praying to God for our country because we need God's work in this land to change our hearts and to change the course, the discourse. And then we pray for rest. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, Pray for those who are the kings and those who are in authority over you, so that you might what? You might live a peaceable and quiet life in all godliness. <laughs> so we can have rest. We pray for this peace that we might have rest. Prayer. I wonder, have you prayed for any political leader... Who, whose policies you might not agree with or whose party you might not share. You know, our president just uh, contracted coronavirus, he and his wife, and I, I, I've read and heard some people are like, well, I hope he dies. Or, you know, they're, they're praying imprecatory psalms on, 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 on the president, maybe you know, that he would be judged or whatever. And I'm thinking, you know, regardless of whether you like the president or you don't like the president, regardless of your political party, your things on position, we should pray. I pray for people whose policies and politics I don't agree with, and, and I would hope that we would, as God's people, we would pray. and <laughs> We should be praying. So that we can live in tranquility and godliness. We should pray. We should pray that God would save the souls of those who are in, our, in leadership. I think we should be praying that God would give them wisdom and direct them in their hearts. I pray that we should pray that God would give them physical health and strength. It was Solomon who said in Proverbs chapter 21. The heart of the king is like rivers of water in the hands of the Lord. And he directs it wherever he wills. You pray for God's direction? On those people who are making these decisions, I, I hope we would pray. And so, as God's people, we pursue the welfare of our city. Secondly, we participate in civic activity. We're called to do that. And there's three considerations there. First of all, I think we should respond to the proper incentive. Now, as you look at the scriptures, uh, there are some examples of participation in civics and the use of your rights as citizens and your privileges and responsibilities as a citizen first of all with Jesus 
In Mark chapter 12, verse 17, he said, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. He's talking about paying taxes predominantly. But hey, you pay your taxes. Then we have to, uh, and, and we say, Jesus, we, we talked about this in the first service this morning in John chapter 18 and 19. Jesus defended himself before Pilate. Pilate says, don't you know I have authority to, uh, you know, put you to prison and put you to death? And Jesus says, hey, look, buddy. Now, this is my paraphrase. You have no authority except that which has been given to you by God. You know, so watch out. And then we have Paul. The Apostle Paul, all through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, Paul was un unfairly imprisoned. And then they were trying to get him out of town real quickly. And, and in verse 37 of Acts chapter 16, he goes, oh, no, 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 you don't. You don't put a Roman citizen in prison and try to dis uh, inappropriately and try to discard me. That doesn't work that way. And then in Acts chapter 22, verse 25, uh, they were going to scourge him. They were going to, and he goes, uh, do you have the right to scourge a Roman citizen without trial? Oh, then they backed off. And then in Acts chapter 25, they were going to take him down to try him on some, you know, kangaroo court. And he says, no way. You can't do that. I appeal to Caesar. So the point that I'm making is that as salt and light in the world, believers, salt and light in the world, we should seek and we should seize uh, political involvement as an opportunity to do good. As an opportunity to declare God's truth. As an opportunity to defy that which is evil in a way that's consistent with our profession of faith. Should be involved in it. We have a, a friend, more than I do, who serves in the state house in the legislature. And his primary goal of going to the state house was to be a witness for Christ. That's why he wanted to serve. He wanted to serve in that way, to seek to bring be salt and light in the state house. And God is using him in marvelous ways to impact people. And it's it's a wonderful thing. We should respond with proper incentive. We should require personal integrity. Now, I'm stepping into the weeds right here, okay? So uh, just, just hold on. But we want our politicians to reflect. Remember the, the quote that I gave that we have corrupt and, and uh, bad politicians because that's the people we tolerate. Well, we don't want to tolerate that. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 11, uh, a, a child is known by his actions, by whether he is true and right. Well, what's true of children is true of adults because <laughs> adults are just grown-up kids, and we're, actions prove who we are. So I want you to think with me, if you will, that belief determines behavior. So what we believe impacts what we do. And we know from Galatians that the deeds of the flesh are evident. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 through 18, the deeds of the flesh are evident, and the fruit of the Spirit is evident. So whatever the fruit is uh, gives us an indication of the heart of the person, all right? President Garfield said this, it's sad and it's true, it was sad and true then, it's sad and true now, but it's still true. Now more than ever before, the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it is because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. So, how do we balance the desire for integrity in the people that serve us in the state house and in the other places of government? How do we balance the desire for integrity with imperfect reality? And what I mean by that? Well, 
these people that we elect are human beings. And they are fallen human beings, okay? They're flawed. So, a couple of suggestions. First of all, begin with the realistic expectations of who these people are that we're electing to office. Uh, Frank Turek, apologist Frank Turek, put it this way. He says, we're voting for a president, not a pastor. Okay? And it's true for whatever political office. It's not just that. But, you know, you're voting for, you know, you fill in the blank, whatever political office. It's a state representative, a city council member, a school board member, or whatever. We're voting for that position, not, not somebody to be our pastor. These people are not the standard bearers of the Christian faith. They're not elected to be shepherds of, of flocks of people. They're not elected to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That does not excuse but it might explain, and it helps us to do understand it. So determining who that would be, that would be this, you know, basically what we do when we vote is my, uh, we opt for the least imperfect person. We're voting for the least imperfect person. Now how do we determine who's the least imperfect person? Well, uh, that's a big debate, but I'm going to throw out some suggestions for you. And we, we determine this based upon their policy positions and their personal practice. Okay? At least that's my estimation of it. I don't know how else to do it. And so the a realistic evaluation. So we have realistic, realistic expectation. Then we go with realistic evaluation of that person. And we do that through... Uh, this is the third point in that second, uh, second point of the outline, is to uh, realistically prioritize the issues because policy reflects character. Practice reflects character, okay? So if we want greater integrity in our politicians and desire to live, and we desire to live consistently with our profession, we elect those who hold moral positions and moral practice as best we can. Remember, they're imperfect people. So they're not going to live it out perfectly. Let me ask you this. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, do you live out fully all of the implications of that in your daily life? Well, do you ever speed? Do you ever get mad and angry at somebody who cuts in front of you? Do you ever get mad and angry at somebody like I did last night? I'm driving home, and this person is going down Hickman Road, and the speed limit is 35, uh, 40 miles an hour right there, and they're going 30. Like, that's a sin. No, it's not. But my response was not, I mean, I didn't, I didn't tailgate him. I thought, okay, Steve, just chill out. Just chill out. So we never, all of us, ever live fully out the implications. So neither do these politicians who profess to be Christians, and particularly those who don't profess to be Christians, they're not living out their Christian faith because they don't have one. So let's take a look at it realistically. We, we want we want. Integrity, so we evaluate their policy, we evaluate their personal life, but we take it with a grain of salt. And we also desire to live consistently with our profession, so we have to work to get people elected who will reflect our personal convictions as best we can. I want you to look and consider three passages of Scripture in regards to this. First of all, Proverbs chapter 17, uh, verse 15. And it says this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. Justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous. 
The second verse is Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. And the next one is Romans chapter 12, verse 9, which the, the essence of it that I want to bring to you is that we must abhor that which is evil and we must cling to that which is good. And not only do we do this, but we seek to get this reflected in the people that we put in office. That's our desire to do this. So how do we do that? Well, I'm benefiting from uh, the, the terminology and kind of the thought process on a couple of things here from David Platt, who did a whole six-hour thing on this whole topic. But he talked about issue triage, okay? Uh, helpful insight on prioritizing what issues are, you know, from a biblical perspective. So issue triage, there are primarily primary issues and there are secondary issues. Primary issues... And he defines them this way, and I agree with him, are essential to the integrity of Christianity. So there are certain issues, as we're talking about the policy issues, that are essential to the integrity of Christianity. And they're actually backed up by biblical propositions and truth. Okay? And if there's disagreement, then there will be division okay, on these issues. Now, these aren't the majority of the issues, but they are important issues. And they are the issues such as for Christians. Now, if you're not a believer and you're just kind of here listening and you're kind of like, oh, I don't know, just, I, I just ask you to just hold on, okay? Uh, just don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater yet. Uh, don't uh, crucify me yet. Uh, just, let's just listen and see what God's Word has to say. And these are the issues. The Bible is clear concerning the evils. And I said that, that's an intentional, the evils of abortion and the evil of racism. Okay? Now, it's not only those things. There are other things that are evil, so I'm just giving you illustrations, not an exhaustive list. Please, bear with me. So, and, and the Bible is also clear on the definitions. The definitions of gender, the definitions of family, and the definitions of marriage. Okay? So, Christians... It doesn't seem that the Bible would encourage Christians to support candidates whose positions are contrary to the Bible's position on those types of issues, those primary issues. Okay? Now, you say, well, you're trying to legislate morality. And that's a big indictment, you know, people say, of, of, especially of right-wing evangelical conservative Christians. Oh, you're just trying to legislate morality. Now, what a straw man that is. Why? Because that's what laws are. Every law is a moral decision. It's just what morality is being reflected by that law. It's, it's all a choice, okay? That's what more... That's what laws do, okay? So we, don't, we, we do legislate morality. So let's talk about, I want to talk about a, a couple of these issues. Uh, for example, uh, I believe personally that, that, that abortion is a watershed issue, okay? And uh, I say this, taking the life, and I made this case when we first started this series, taking the life of another human being, created in the image of God, is, is a terrible, terrible thing. But it's not unforgivable. And I want you to hear me say this. Because someone would stop me when I said it's a terrible thing. It's not unforgivable. I understand. When I speak to a group, probably at least 20% of the people have gone through this. And, and my heart goes out to you. Uh, but 
it is forgivable. God in his infinite mercy and grace has made a way for, for that to be forgiven, but it doesn't mean that, it's, that it was right. It, it, it's still wrong. And so I would say to everybody who's listening here this morning, to those who've had an abortion, I, I speak with compassion that God will forgive and does forgive. He either has or he will forgive if you ask for this forgiveness. I also speak with the utmost conviction that personal and or political support of abortion is absolutely inconsistent with professing faith in Christ. In other words, people who would support that position are either doing so out of an ignorance of the facts about what Christ says or they're doing it in deliberate disobedience to Christ. It's my understanding. I don't know how you can slice it any other way because of all the sins that we can commit, the taking of a human life is the only one that I know in Scripture that God says deserves retribution in kind, that we would, our life would be taken. But in the mercy of God, He doesn't do that if we turn and trust in Him. Okay? So this is the thing. So you say, well, uh, am I a single-issue voter? <laughs> you hear that one before. Oh, you're just a single-issue voter. Well, and I'm borrowing the logic from Al Mohler here, and I would say yes and no. How's that for a politician? <laughs> yes and no. Here's the deal. I would, I, I, would, I would think that people who look at the Scriptures and understand the value, the sanctity, and the dignity of human life would say that that would be a prominent issue that is important that, to be pro-life. And when I say pro-life, I mean that as a person who does not support the taking of innocent life in the womb. That's the basis of its starting. Because in our culture today, there's a, there's a twist of that pro-life Movement and I, I was distraught and I, I, by this headline that I read recently, evangelicals, uh, pro-life evangelicals who support, and then there was a name of a politician who was avowedly uh, a proponent of abortion. And to me, that's a total inconsistency. Uh, there's a, there, you can support life. I mean, you can support all kinds. You can support uh, care for life. You can support for uh, Hospice care, that's, that's, that's a pro-life position, but it's not that you are caring for the life of the unborn. And I think that uh, Christians, I cannot imagine, and I'm, I'm submitting this to you, okay? I cannot imagine that as, as, a, as, a, as a conscientious believer in the Lord Jesus that I would put any other issue more important than the life of another human being. Or, or that I would, I would stack up a few issues and, and weigh them against this and say that this, this weighs heavier than, than the life of... I just don't see that in, in the Scriptures. Now, you can take issue with me, but I will take you to passages where the Scripture calls us out on that. But I'm not a single-issue voter, okay? Because I would, I would submit to you that people who hold to a pro-life position as I've defined it, are also the same people who would support most of the other primary issues 
they're going to define marriage the same way that I would define marriage as the union of one man and one woman for life. They're going to understand that God created us male and female. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's God's good creation. They're going to understand that the family is defined as the scripture defined for the most part. Now, uh, they're not going to be absolute in all that, okay, but... For the most part, they do. So it's a, I'm a single-issue voter. Yeah, but I'm not a single-issue voter because if I'm on this one, then chances are uh, that that person that I support is going to be uh, at least aligned with many, if not all, of the other ones. And you know, consider this. I talked about the issue of racism being an evil as well. I'd like to ask you that uh, see the connection between racism and the issue of abortion. Since most abortions, most aborted babies are black, is not a denunciation of abortion an absolute support of black lives? I, I, I don't know how you would see it not that way. Now, that's, now, I'm not saying that's the only way. Okay, don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that's the only way. I'm saying it is a way that I can demonstrate that I actually am in support of all life. Because here's the deal, folks. The people who regard the dignity and sanctity of human life in the womb are almost... Always, now, not universally and not perfectly, they value life outside the womb of every human being. Black, white, male, female, rich, poor, intellectually challenged or not, whatever. We value life because it's made in the image of God. Pro-life advocates are generally the same defenders of the other issues. In a fallen world, we're pushed up against by, by these things. And fallen people, remember the issue is, don't call what is evil good and what is good evil. And what God defines as evil, we need to declare as evil. And unfortunately in our day, the, the people that we elect are more and more removed from decisions about what is evil and what is good because we have an outsized influence in our judiciary. And so you have people like former Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg who said this, prostitution must be legalized. All boy and all girl organizations must be sexually integrated. You see, thinking Christians understand the implications not just for the people they vote for, but for the people that they appoint and put into positions because so much of the policy and decisions in our government are not made by the elected officials. They're made by people. We need people who are supporting. Then there are secondary issues. Those are primary issues. Secondary issues, okay? These are down the line. You know, if you go into the ER, I went into the ER once. Uh, I, had a, I cut my thumb on a can lid, you know. I was bachelor and, you know, opened the can and cut my thumb. You know, I sat in the ER for quite a long time. Because it really wasn't, I mean, I wasn't bleeding to death and uh, I was conscious and they didn't care. You know, I mean, there are people who had real stuff going on. So what I'm saying is the things that I've mentioned before, the abortion, the racism, the gender, the family, the marriage, all that stuff, that's the, that's the triage. You get, you get right in. But this other stuff about, well, uh, certain practices of poverty alleviation and military preparedness and, you know, how prepared does the military need to be and those kind of things, they're not that important. They should not be, you know, real prominent issues in in deciding who we're going to support at the polls. Not that we don't have a consideration of it, but that shouldn't be. Economics, you know, 
oh, well, this person is going to be good for me economically, you know. Well, I'm not saying you shouldn't consider that, but I don't think that should be a primary issue. It doesn't seem like it from the, from the word. Now, here's the deal. My summary. No candidate will likely agree with you or me on every issue, okay? On every policy. No candidate will likely please you or me in their personal life. Remember? The least worst. Okay, we're picking the least of the worst. You know, the least worst person. And, and, and many of them are not believers, you know, so we don't expect them. And then most of them will not uh, agree with me or satisfy me in their personality. And when that is true, given all that is true, I will opt for and believe that we should opt for the policy rather than any of these other things and the other defects. Because the policy reflects their personal convictions and those are the things that are going to uh, reflect in the culture and in the society. Look, if my car needs fixed, competence, not congeniality, is what I look for in my mechanic. Right? I mean, I want a mechanic that's going to do the job. Even if they aren't a nice guy. Now, chances are if I can find a nice guy that does the job, I'm going to go to that one. Uh, but this is, this is the thing. So we are to pursue what is good for the, for the city. We are to practice and, and participate in civics. And finally, the scripture calls us to prioritize gospel ministry. That's the main thing we're on the planet for. Not political revolution, okay? So we're supposed to tell the truth two ways. We're supposed to tell the truth to the world. Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, speaking the truth, uh, we're supposed to speak the truth one to another, okay? That's what he tells us. We're supposed to speak the truth one to another. So there's two things about which we speak the truth. We speak the truth about sin. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 4, 14. This is really an interesting passage because, uh, to me because Herod had John the Baptist put in prison. <clears throat> Why did he have him put in prison? <laughs> now again, political leader, Jesus follower. Why was John the Baptist put in prison? Because he said to Herod, the king, you should not be married to your brother's wife. He called a spade a spade. And he said, this is wrong. This is sin. He pointed out, the John condemns Herod's adultery. Christians condemn, we should condemn, sexual immorality. We should condemn the destruction of the nuclear family, dishonesty, racism. You put it in there, whatever the scripture condemns, we should condemn. In public arena. But we care about the people engaged in the activity. That's the difference. It's not just you, 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 you. Rotten person, rotten person, rotten person. No, it's that this is wrong. This is sin. But we care about you. If I don't care, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. You can write this down and look it up later and check me on it. But Paul says to the, the Corinthians, he lists all these sins. And he says, those who commit these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the point. We don't just point out sin because we want to point out sin. We point out sin because people are sinners. And if people are sinners, then they're going to hell. And we don't want people to go to hell. So we tell them they're sinning so they can repent of their sin and trust in Christ and then be saved. It. It's not because I delight, because I'm, I'm no better than you. Remember we've said all of us are equally capable of any and every sin. 
So I don't stand with a high and mighty, oh, I'm better than you. No, I'm a child of the king because of his grace. And so are you if you know Jesus. And if you aren't, that's the only way you get in. And it's a marvelous thing. There, and then we speak the truth, and that's where I was going with this. We speak the truth about Jesus. We speak the truth about sin. We speak the truth about the Savior. Okay? There's no party. There's no politician or policy that can eliminate hostility, racism, jealousy, greed. Only Jesus can do that. Only he can remove it from my heart. Only he can change me. You see, we deserve God's wrath because of our sin. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and the salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Human sin deserves God's punishment. But God in his love sent his son. In 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. All who believe were escape the penalty. What Jesus said? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish. Why would we, why would we perish? Because of our sin, but might have everlasting life if we would trust in him. And as a believer, if you put your faith and your trust in Christ, guess what? You're delivered from the penalty of sin, everlasting life which begins the moment we trust Christ, but we're delivered from the penalty of sin, but also the scripture tells us we're delivered from the power of sin. So it's believers who have the power of Christ in us to love the unlovable, the power of Christ in us to love each other despite our differences. So it doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter what educational level you have. It doesn't matter what occupation you have. As a believer in Christ, we come together unified by the blood of Christ. That's the power of the gospel. That is the only answer for race, injustice, and government issues in our country, in the world. It is through Christ. Formerly self-centered humans are able to love believers as their brothers and sisters in Christ and everyone as image bearers. And we do it imperfectly. Okay? We do it imperfectly. But we're only able to do it. And so, first of all, we must speak the truth. Uh, in, we must speak the truth about sin. And we speak the truth about our Savior. And not only are we called to tell the truth to the world, we're called to trust the Lord. We tell the truth, we trust the Lord. Because I don't know what's going to happen. But you can write this down, Proverbs 29, 25. Don't have a slide for it. It just says we should trust in the Lord. Those who follow, trust in God. Because we don't know what the consequence is going to be of what happens in the next election or tomorrow. We're citizens of heaven. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we anxiously wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. As, as citizens of heaven, we trust regard, God regardless of what happens on this earth. Now, that's easier to say. I mean... You know, I know some of you, it's like, you can go back election cycles and you're like, oh, I thought the world was coming to an end because so-and-so got elected. And then you go back, I mean, you go to the next election cycle. Oh, the end's coming because, you know, so-and-so got elected. And guess what? We're still here. God is in charge. God is in control. And we're waiting. Guess what? We're waiting for the perfect government. 
If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then Revelation 21 is an encouragement to you because we're waiting for the day when we gather at the Lamb's, at the throne of the Lamb, and we're worshiping Him forever and ever, and there will be no political parties, there will be no concern about race, there will be no concern about injustice. It'll just be us with the Lord. And guess what? We want you there. We want you there. And the only way you'll get there is if you put your faith, you confess that you are a person rebelling against God, you turn from your sin, you trust in Christ, and you accept his death as the payment that you deserve. It sounds too simple, but it's not. And then you follow him all the days of your life. Jeremiah 29, 11 is a familiar verse for many of For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not calamity, for a future and a hope. A future and a hope. A promise that was given to Israel, but it's held out for others. And I want to leave you with this quote from C.S. Lewis that talks about our perspective on this world based upon how we're viewing the next. Here's what Lewis said. The Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It's since, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. If we're looking to heaven, then our lives will infect this world and make a difference for it. Now, you may be listening to all this, and you maybe have never put your faith or your trust in Christ. You're going, well, this guy's crazy. Well, Christians are just trying to legislate morality. They're trying to just push the Bible down my throat. Listen to me, please, if you would. Christians promote biblical morality in society Because we want to see the transformation of people, not the reformation of the culture. If people's lives are transformed, there will be a difference in the culture. But our goal is not cultural revolution. It's spiritual transformation in the heart of a people. Because we want those who are headed for a destiny apart from God to come into relationship with Him through His Son Jesus and to live this abundant life that God has called us not This is not prosperity gospel. I'm not promising you a pink Cadillac. I'm not promising you a a house on Malibu. Uh, The Bible doesn't say that. It just says that you will have a promise of eternal life and God will live with you. We're also not in this uh, for ourselves. It's for the preservation of the nation. You notice it says in Jeremiah 27, for the good of the people and the city and for you. It's, It's to benefit the nation. Guess what? You know what? God's principles, when followed God's way, leads to God's blessing. I mean, there's a right way and a wrong way. And if you go the wrong way, you get bad stuff. And we see that in the culture. When we've abandoned God, we get knucklehead stuff. It's bad. And finally, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I have to live out my faith. And to live up my faith is to call sin, sin, so that sinners turn to Christ. To live up my faith is to seek responsible participation in government that reflects love and genuine concern and compassion and heartfelt desire for people's good. That's just who we are as Christians. Believers, I'm going to quote it again. If you claim to be a person of faith and it does not dictate your politics, you're not a person of faith. We pursue the welfare of our city our country. We participate honorably and we prioritize the gospel of ministry. and We do it because of what Jesus did for us and through the blood of Christ he reconciled all things to himself 
and made peace through the blood of his cross. The bread and the cup that we take is a reminder that Christ paid it all so that we could be brought into a relationship with him and given the power to love. And it would break down the barriers of race, ethnicity, gender, economic status, anything. And enable us to love one another, but also to enable us to love others who aren't in the family because we want them in. We want them to be part of the family. I just invite you, take a moment as the praise team uh, sings to prepare your hearts. And on your chair, there should be a, a cup and it has a little thing. It has bread and it has, or a wafer and it has juice. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, just take some time to search your heart. Ask God to do what he needs to do in your heart. And then uh, at the appropriate time, just uh, peel that back and take it. Uh, nobody's obligated, but everybody's invited. Let me pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. I thank you for your patience. I thank you for your grace. I pray that each of us would weigh uh, the truths of the word and that they would guide us more than our affiliation with a certain group of people or a certain thought pattern, but that we would submit to you in all that we do and say. And Lord, I know that I don't perfectly live out all of the implications of my faith. I know that there is grace for us to grow in that, and I pray that we would be gracious with others who are growing in it as well. Thank you for your Son, our Savior, Lord Jesus, who brought us to become children of the King forever. We pray in Jesus' name.